Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Good morning, everybody. Once again, welcome to Oak Hills Church Online. Um, I just wanted to, uh, well, for those who don't know who I am, I'm uh, Manuel Luz. I'm uh, the creative arts pastor here at the church, and I'll be uh, delivering the message today, which will be a little shorter, I hope. Um, I just wanted to mention just real briefly the the tenor of our service today, and especially Lorraine's prayer, as uh, we uh, walk into um, some troubled times. And I just want to encourage you, as I have been doing so with the different small groups that I've been a part of, I've been um, specifically walking into the dialogue that is um, the sin of race, racial um, uh, 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 strife and racial uh, problems that we're having. And um, I think it's been an important thing for us as people to walk into those conversations with lots of grace and uh, with humility, knowing that we don't know our own blind spots. And uh, I can tell you that personally, the conversations that I've been having with my different small groups have been very rich and rewarding and eye-opening. And I encourage you to to uh, have those discussions as well with your friends and neighbors and the people in your small groups and with your family as well. Well, okay, we're no longer in the series uh, that we were in before. We're no longer in Eastertide, and we're entering into the summer and um, even though we live in extraordinary times, um, this time in the church calendar is called ordinary time. So throughout the summer, we're going to be going into this um, new series that we're calling Churnings. Um, throughout this summer, we're going to be talking about some things that we think are churning in our hearts, things that we feel that are important, um, things that we feel maybe God may be stirring within us. And so Mike's going to be speaking on a variety of things from from mentorship to marriage to trust, kind of the things that are churning around in his head. And also you're going to be hearing from other people, from Colleen, Emily, from Lorraine and Kent. And uh, as we kick off this new series on churnings today, you're going to be hearing from me. So um, there's been a lot of stuff churning inside of me, and most of the those Thoughts are not fully formed thoughts and not worth sharing. But uh, if you know me, that one of the things that is always continually churning in me is the idea of worship. Now, I've spoken on worship a number of times over the years, and it's an important topic at Oak Hills, right? Um, and it's churning in me for a variety of different reasons. Um, we counted a privilege to come before you and lead you in worship for you to give us the opportunity to be led by us. And we don't take it lightly. Jordan and I and the worship teams and the tech teams and those of us who serve you in this well, in this way, we call it, we, we, we uh, know the privilege and the calling of coming before God with you each Sunday morning. Now, occasionally, as I'm leading you in worship or just being up here, here I think to myself, how, um, how, does formation relate to worship? How does our formation um, relate to the worship that we have here on a Sunday morning? 
And I look at you guys in the face, and I know that God is working in each of one of you, but do you understand how that your formation is vitally important to the worship that we offer to God on a Sunday morning? So let me unpack that for a little bit, because that's what I'm going to be churning about today. There are four words on the wall in our lobby, and that four words are formation, mission, community, and worship. And these are important words. These represent our values. These are the four words that drive us and define us as a community of faith. Of course, of those four words, formation, mission, community, and worship, formation is our primary emphasis. Um, that is what we talk about the most and is what we try to um, encourage you to become spiritually formed. But also, we've also talked about how uh, formation relates to mission, Right? Um, we, uh, the more that we um, understand ourselves, the more that we are fully formed in Christ, the more we become naturally um, relating our relationship with Christ to the world. So we become mission-oriented in that way. We also understand that our formation cannot happen in a vacuum. And so we gather with one another, and we gather in community. And so community relates to formation as well. We live out our faith. We further the kingdom. Um, we talk about missional communities, and we talk about um, uh, iron sharpening iron. And so there's formation, and there's mission, and there's community. But where does worship? Where does worship fit into all of this thing? And specifically, how does our formation relate to worship? Let me say it another way. Formation, or who we are becoming. How does who we are becoming relate to how we relate to God? Okay, so... Um, as we get into that a little bit, I want to um, unpack a few definitions for those of us that are newer or just maybe need a little bit of a, uh, a primer on some of this. What is the definition of formation? Well, let me give you one, okay? Um, spiritual transformation is what we are called to in cooperation with the Holy Spirit and under the Lordship of Jesus Christ to reform who we are from our past spiritual deformations. It is the process of transformation of what Dallas Willard calls the whole self, including and especially the inmost part, the heart or the will. We are formed so that our natural expression becomes the deeds of Christ through the power of Christ. In other words, we become the type of person for which love and the deeds of Jesus become natural and easy. So when we talk about living in the kingdom or furthering God's kingdom, what we're talking about is allowing God to reign, to reign in our hearts and in our community and out into our world. So that's, that's a definition of formation. Formation is who we are before God. Um, let's talk about worship for a second. What is your definition of worship? I've talked about this and taught this a whole lot over the years, and uh, there's no one right definition of worship. Um, it's a big word, and it's a small word. In other words, it's a big word in that it can uh, describe everything that we do as we relate to God. Um, uh, the glory of God um, around us and our response to it. It can also be a very small word, because sometimes we use it to talk about what happens here on a Sunday morning. Um, people even just refer to it as a singing sometimes, right? So there's, there's many definitions of worship, both big and small. But let me give you a couple of uh, definitions that I think will be helpful. Here's a Trinitarian definition. 
Worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. Let me say that again. Worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. In other words, it is the the communion of the Godhead, of the Trinity, in communion with the community of his people, the the bride and the groom. Um, It's revelation and response. It begins with God and ends with God. God reveals himself to us, and then we respond to that revelation. Um, And also, I want to share one more definition of worship. That is my personal favorite definition. And it comes from Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And when you say heart and soul and mind and strength, that's what uh, Dallas Willard refers to as the whole self. So loving God with our whole self. So that's a that's a operating definition that we'll go back to. Okay. So there's two definitions: formation and worship. Now I want to um, offer one more definition, and that's the definition of. And this is going to be important to understand where we're headed with this. What is your definition of the false self? We use that term a lot, and uh, I want to give you a definition of it. The term false self refers to an identity when we unconsciously form throughout our lives that disguises, undergirds, and protects us. It's false because it's based on an inner dialogue of self-sustaining lies, defense mechanisms, and conscious and subconscious pretending. You see, through our lives, um, through uh, the scars that we have emotionally, through our family of origin, through our own self-perpetuating self-talk and things like that, we create a deformed soul. Or not create, we have a deformed soul. And the false self is our wrong perception of ourselves to deceive ourselves and deceive others um, for that deformed soul. So there is, there's those three definitions, okay? Formation, worship, and false self. And I contend that the false self is what gets in the way of our worship. In my own faith journey, I found that my false self was not just something I created to protect myself from others, but it was something I created to make myself like myself. Make myself like myself. My performance addiction, my pride, my hidden inadequacies. My false self sheltered me from others and from myself. But I've also come to realize that my false self is something I use to shelter myself from God. It helped me to keep God at arm's length so that I could maintain some amount of control and distance from his will, from his holiness, from his meddling in my life. And of course, that's not a good thing. But it's taken me a lifetime to dismantle the mechanisms of the false self. So Aaron read um, an example of the Bible of where we can kind of see this kind of in play live in this conversation between this woman at the well and with Jesus. And uh, John 4 is kind of the only place that Jesus directly teaches on worship. Um, The John 4 passage is also the, the spot where we say uh, the, the term in spirit and in truth, which is in John 4.24. And it's quoted often, especially by worship leaders. Worship leaders quote this all the time. But I think that this, this term is very, very much misunderstood. 
John 4 informs us of our understanding of formation as it relates to worship. And we tend to sanitize this conversation. Um, We read it um, as if it was from the Bible. Um, Instead of reading it from the standpoint of this is a real Samaritan woman with, with foibles and scars and hurts and pain. She was a real person and she was having a real conversation with the real Jesus. This uh, woman is kind of wrapped up in a, like, a, uh, like a burrito in her false self. And as we take a look at it, she uses every opportunity to keep Jesus away from her. So I'm going to walk through it one more time and let's take a peek at it. The background is, of course, the disciples are traveling through Samaria and Jesus stops at the well. The other guys go off to look for food in the, in the city and Jesus is standing there and um, waiting. And it's noontime. And I think it's really important in, in verse 6 why they say it was at noontime, why it was in midday. Um, it already, already we're ha- getting a description of who this woman, this Samaritan woman is. Why is she there at noon? Well, most of the women, they come in the morning, early morning, to gather water so that they can cook breakfast. And then they go in the evening to cook dinner. She goes at noon because she doesn't want to be seen. She wants to be by herself, alone, and not bothered. She has something to hide. So, let's look at this. When the Samaritan woman, I'm starting in 7, came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Uh, Jesus had gone, uh, his disciples had gone into town to buy the food. So he asks, he's already breaching protocol, right? He's not supposed to speak to her um, because he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, he's a man, she's a woman. There there are protocols that have already been broken here. In verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Right, so right at the beginning, there, the the Samaritan woman is putting up boundaries. She's putting up walls. She's saying, "Hey, hey, hey, know your place, and I'll know my place." Right, so she's trying to protect herself. Jesus answered her, "If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water." Now, here's here's her response to that. Sir, the woman said, "You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water?" So here's here's where I start to deviate a little bit from most of the most of the people who read this. I think she's really being quite um, snarky here. She said, "It's not that. Where are you going to get this driven water? It's it's, huh? Where are you going to get this living water? See what I'm saying? It, she's being argumentative. She's uh, being sarcastic. She's being snarky in this. Are you greater than your father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank for himself, and also of his sons and flocks?" And herds, like, hey, you know, you're, you're not, you're not all that. What you don't have the right to tell me this. Now we, we go to verse 13. Jesus answered, "Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life." Now let's go to 15 because this is her response to this. The woman said to him, "Sir, give me this water." so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, in my opinion, that is not a request. That's sarcasm. She's actually saying, huh, okay, sir, then give me this water so that I won't have to be coming here all the time because my life sucks. And she's, she's, she doesn't believe that, she's good, that he can give her the water. 
That's the point. She's, she's actually being sarcastic. She's once again being argumentative, putting up, um, par- putting up her boundaries. So now Jesus needs to take her defenses down. In 16, he says, go call your husband and come back. Her response, I have no husband, she replied. Now she's resorted to lying. Verse 17, she's, tr- she's doing everything that she possibly can to keep Jesus at arm's length. She's bold-faced lying to, her, to him. And, of course, Jesus calls her out. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, she's, she's being found out, and she doesn't like it. So we're going to go to verse 19, and now what does she say? She says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Does she really mean that? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jesus, Jews claim that this is the place that we must worship. Uh, the, the, place we, uh, the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, if what I'm saying is true, if, if, if this Samaritan woman is actually being evasive and argumentative and sarcastic... It would, it, would, it would be reasonable to assume that what she's doing now is not trying to get an answer, but trying to be evasive. She's avoiding the real issue. She wants to change the subject from her having five husbands. So she's saying, oh, you must be a prophet. Then uh, tell me about this. So Jesus declared, and in 21, I wish, I wish I could add something to the Bible in this spot because I think that there's a big sigh, heavy sigh from Jesus. So this is my interpretation of verse 21. Jesus declared, sigh. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritan women worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Uh, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And here's the key thing. God is spirit, and the worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And here's the last thing I'm going to say. When Jesus says in spirit and in truth, I think in part what Jesus is saying is, looking at, looking at this woman in the eyes and realizing all of the evasiveness and lies and... Um, uh, 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 sarcasm and argumentation she's been giving to Jesus and Jesus is just looking her in the eyes and saying and in truth I think that Jesus is calling her out I think Jesus is saying I know that you're lying to me and I see right through you you don't need to lie to me I know who you really are and here's the thing Jesus is saying to her in so many words I don't love the person you pretend to be. I love the person who you really are. Jesus is lovingly and gently and completely unraveling her. And he does so with great redemption and with great grace. In in John 29, 429 and again in 39, it's said twice here in the Bible that the, the, the lady says, He told me everything I ever did. So we know that this conversation was a much, much, much longer conversation for him to unravel her entire life in front of her in a way that was redemptive, um, in a way that um, she started to understand that she didn't have to put up the false front. She didn't have to live in her false self. 
So I want to note a couple of things in this. First, the woman is characterologically different after Jesus frees her from her false self. The way that Jesus treats her and loves her in this, in this conversation was revelatory and life-changing. Second um, thing to note is formation leads to mission, right? What did she do after her conversation? She immediately went out and she shared what had happened with others. She was no longer a person who was in hiding. She went straight to people and she said, you know what, I just met this person and I think that this person is the son of God. She was unashamed for the first time probably in her adult life. And the third thing, formation led to community. She did not hide it by herself. She didn't say, it's just me and God now. She went to community. She went to the people. She was no longer hiding. She was seeking out others. And then finally, formation led her to worship. The uh, the God the Son was revealed to her, and her response was to believe. So there's the four words on the wall. What can we take away from Jesus' teaching? Well, Jesus wants a relationship with our true self, not our false self. He wants us to be spiritually formed and not deformed. He wants that because he wants that relationship with who we really are. And he loves our true self. He, we don't have to put uh, pretending. We don't have to put up games. We don't have to um, uh, put a false front in front of our God. And um, I think that this is one of the ways in which we can look at the passage in 8.32. John 8.32, the truth shall set you free. Obviously, the truth of Jesus seeing her and calling her out for who she really was set her free. Um, It's my contention. Jesus wants us to worship from our true selves, not from our false self. And I want you to imagine what that might look like to worship fully from our true selves. Um, it isn't easy, though. It is very, very difficult. And that's why the process of spiritual formation requires work. Let me read this. Those of us who have father wounds have trouble worshiping a God who describes himself as the perfect father. Those of us who have image management issues are emotionally unable to admit fully the ugliness of our sins before the God who is holy, holy, holy. Those of us who have intimacy issues can't fully enter into the vulnerable intimacy of a loving God or his faith community. Those of us with poor self-image or low self-esteem issues may find ourselves never fully accepting and receiving grace. Those burdened by false guilt have a hard time shedding the need to be self-punishing and simply accepting God's perfect forgiveness. And those of us who have grown up in a shame-based family or culture find it hard to live freely and fully in the joy of the Lord. These are some of the ways in which our spiritual formation is tied deeply to worship. I want you to imagine what that would be like if our worship was not colored by our shame. What if there was no guilt No posturing, no pretending, no holding back, no hypocrisy, no self-centeredness. There's nothing between our true self and our true God. 
This is what it is to worship in spirit and in truth. So let me close here, and I'm going to ask you guys a question. To what degree are you worshiping Jesus with your false self? What are some of the false self issues of your deformation that are getting in the way of more being able to be more fully communing with our God? When we are in our false self, we offer our pretense to God. And here's the thing. Blind spots, by definition, are spots we don't even see. And I know I have mine, and I'm sure you have yours. And the blind spots that we have are those things that we don't realize we have our false self in front of us. Remember the definition that I gave you of what worship was. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. In other words, to love the Lord your God with your whole self. God wants us to love him with our whole self and not our false self. So, what would it like be like to worship the triune God with our true self? Well, many years ago, um, uh, Greg Rosler, who many of you know, invited the Manuel Luz Trio to join him at ministering at a prison, um, a state prison in Ione. And I'd like to close by reading a story um, from that event. Please place your IDs on the counter. The correctional officer was professional but impersonal, which didn't allay my anxiety. We had just arrived and already I was beginning to question whether this was a good idea. My band had been invited by a prison ministry to perform a concert and lead worship for their two Sunday services at an area correctional facility. The Slammer, the Pokey, the Big House. Everyone has preconceived notions about prison. Mine were colored by grim, gritty movies like The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile. So I had a little bit than more than a little, I had more than a little trepidation. When my band checked in at the main building, staff carefully frisked us and inventoried our equipment and cords before ushering us through two security doors and into an inner courtyard. The guard tower was a silent, steady reminder that this was no ordinary gig. We set up our drums, guitars, and keyboard on the chapel stage. Several convicts milled around us, all wearing powder blue shirts and jeans, and offered their assistance. They were friendly, helpful. They were just like you and me. Soon the well-worn pews of the chapel were filled to capacity, and at the first downbeat, we were off. These men worshipped. They sang loud, and they clapped, and they raised their hands with heartfelt spontaneity. They overtly encouraged us to lead them. They responded with conviction and certainty and abandon. It was like they actually really believed that the God of the universe was in the chapel with them, because he was. The second service that afternoon was filled to overflowing, mostly with new inmates who had heard about the morning session. And it was even more lively. Off the hook, Greg described it. The best response I've ever seen. The 90-minute service ran an extra hour. And finally, after playing every song that we had twice, I finally had to admit to the men that we had run out of prepared music. Sing Amazing Grace, one of the men shouted. So we did. And it was amazing. The response was nothing short of supernatural. 
Grown men falling to their knees and on their faces, crying and singing and coming forward for prayer. Thirty inmates came forward at the altar call and others came to meet them. It was extraordinary to see these men tattooed and hardened by stories unspoken, completely unraveled by God, completely unashamed of their need for mercy and forgiveness. In these holy moments, I had the privilege of experiencing these men stripped and released of the pretension of their false selves, giving themselves honestly and fully to God. One thing became tangibly real to me that afternoon. These men knew about God's grace in ways that I did not. And they didn't take that grace for granted. In a very real way, it was all they had. For many of us, grace is seemingly wrapped up in our busy, privileged lives and our egocentric, false pretensions. We can, we can hide behind our false selves and never have to face the deformations of our souls that keep Jesus at arm's length. But behind concrete walls and barbed wire fences, words like repentance, freedom, mercy, and truth took on deeper meanings. In my reflections later, it occurred to me that I'm not so different from those people behind those prison bars. I once was lost, but now I'm found. My need for grace, for unraveling, for reconciliation, for God is just the same. For true freedom can only be found in Christ. Only in Christ can we know the truth. And only in Christ can the truth truly set us free. Um, As we close, I'd like to invite Jordan up. And of course, as we're talking about worship now, it's appropriate that we end with worship. Um, And so he's going to lead you in a song. And as he leads you and as you worship with him, I'd like to encourage you to invite you to ask God to reveal to you where your blind spots are. Where are you offering up your false self to God? Where are you hiding in your relationship with him and in your worship to him? Because he desires the fullness of your true self. Fully formed and whole and true in relationship and in worship. Mm-hmm.